What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. If you don't know who John Haight is and I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, H-A-I-D-T. Um, he is a, what, sociologist, and he's, he, has a, he has a newsletter. It's a Substack newsletter as well. It's called After Babel. And he and other researchers have been doing a lot of work examining correlation versus causation on teen mental illness and the epidemic that we are obviously in right now with teens experiencing mental health crises. And he says a big story last week was the partial release of the CDC's biannual youth risk behavior survey, which showed that most teenaged girls, most of them, now say they experience persistent sadness or hopelessness. 57% of teenage girls say they experience persistent sadness or hopelessness. That is up from 36% back in 2011. What changed? I'm going to come back to that. But keep that question in the back of your mind. What changed in the last 12 years, 11 years? 30% of teen girls now say they have seriously considered suicide. That is up from 19% since 2011. Boys are doing badly too, but their rates of depression and anxiety are not as high, and their increases since 2011 are smaller. The big surprise in this last uh, report from the CDC, the big surprise is that COVID did not have much effect on the overall trends. They just kept marching on as they have been since like 2011, 2012, over the last 10 years. Teens were already socially distancing themselves by 2019, which might explain why COVID restrictions added little to their rates of mental illness on average. Now, of course, individuals suffered greatly, but as a group, as a cohort, right, The trend was already going in that direction. They were already experiencing these things before COVID hit. Most of the news coverage after the release of the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey, after that came out, most of the coverage noted that the trends predated COVID. And a lot of those reports mentioned social media as a potential cause. A few of them did the standard thing that journalists have been doing for years, saying, well, we just don't know if it's social media because the evidence is all correlational, not causational, right? Causa- or Correlation is not causation. You've probably heard that before, right? Things can be uh, correlated without being caused by the other. You can say, oh, look at this. I find this thing here. I find this thing here. There seems to be some correlation, but is one causing the other? Well, the evidence doesn't prove that out. It just proves correlation. 
There is now a great deal of evidence, though, that social media is a substantial cause, not just a correlate of depression, anxiety, and behaviors related to depression and anxiety, including self-harm and even suicide. So this is a, because he's teamed up with uh, a couple, well, a couple, one, two, three, at least three different researchers are working on this, what they call uh, a collaborative review. And they're open sourcing this stuff. They've created like some uh, Google documents where people can come in, these experts can come in and uh, put data points in there so they can get more research But he says, all right, and it's a very lengthy piece. The name of the piece is called Social Media is a Major Cause of the Mental Illness Epidemic in Teen Girls. Here's the evidence. And he says, you know, cards on the table, first up, social media. This is one of his uh, stage-setting comments, he calls them. Social media is not the only cause. My larger story is about the rewiring of childhood. And this actually began in the 1990s. It accelerated in the early 2010s, though. He says, I am a social psychologist. Social psychologist, sorry. not uh, What did I call him? A sociologist? No, a social psychologist who is always wary of one-factor explanations for complex social phenomena. In the book that he wrote with Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind. I have highlighted some of the uh, the points in that book uh, in the past. He says, we showed that there were six interwoven threads that produced the explosion of unwisdom, he calls it, unwisdom, which hit American universities in 2015, one of which was the rise of anxiety and depression in Generation Z those born in and after the year 1996. A second thread was the vast overprotection of children that began in the 90s. I've talked about this angle as well, right? The the, uh, free-range kids, right? The ability to go off and do your own thing, but also unstructured play. These two threads are essential for understanding why teen mental health collapsed in the 2010s. In brief, it's the transition from a play-based childhood involving a lot of risky, unsupervised play, which is essential for overcoming fear and fragility. And it moved from play-based childhood to a phone-based childhood, which blocks normal human uh, development by taking time away from sleep, from play, and in-person socializing, as well as causing addiction and drowning kids in social comparisons that they cannot win. These are the two big threads of the six that were explained in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Social media is very different because it transforms social life for everyone, even if you're not on social media. This is a key point in this seven-page, eight-page report on Substack. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to give you the highlights. I read this stuff so you don't have to. You're welcome. I am a giver. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm good, Pete. Thanks. 
Um, I, I totally understand and agree with the uh, Im- impact of social media. Uh, I know I get depressed as heck when I see all these girls with, like, really gorgeous houses, and I'm never going to have that. But the, the thing that occurred to me a while back when I first heard you talking about this, Pete, um, is the question that is the whole climate change um, terror and, like, AOC and Greta Thunberg. And like, what does it do to young people when they hear people that they may look up to say, well, the world is going to end in 10 years? Like, yeah. Like, I mean, and it's, and it's kind of interesting because now we're into the whole, now the, the whole gender ideology is the, you know, issue du jour. And we don't hear as many people saying that. But for the last couple of years, they sure had been. And if you're, if you're like a preteen or a young teenager, how does that mess with your head if you think, well, I better do everything I want now because the, the world, they're telling me the world is going to be over in 10 years. Right. It speaks to this issue that I, I covered yesterday and I do frequently, which is it creates... Uh, a feeling of lack of purpose, right? There's no point to anything. This was like the, the common sentiment in Germany, right? Uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There was no, there, if you don't have any kind of future to look forward to, then what's right. the point of living for that future, right? I'm sure that's got to depress people, and if you have internalized the message that uh, the world is going to end because we're all driving SUVs and, and uh, heating our homes, then, yeah, like, what, what's the point of all of it, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I, I'd imagine. Now, here's another question, though, because you link the uh, the transgender issue also with the climate change. I, I am curious for people that are trans. Is that almost a rejection of the climate change hysteria? Because once you transition and you go on to the therapies, the hormone therapies and stuff, that's a lifelong deal. So if you are going to be needing all of those therapies for the rest of your life, Right? Why would you even bother doing that if you're going to die in 10 years? But it, that's, a, that's a, an interesting question. Yeah, like if the, I mean, you're not going to have access to the medical, uh, the medical care, right? When, when everything starts uh, dying, uh, you're, now you're not going to be able to keep the transition. So then what? Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that layers on another level of depression. I, I think, you know, people who may go through a transition as, as an adult even a young adult or as an adult may be able to grapple with that mm-hmm. or, or kind of figure out an answer for that a little bit more. The thing that upsets me so much about the whole gender ideology thing is how young they're imposing this on, you know, on children. Yeah. I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. I, I really can't. I, I just, I find that so tragic because I don't think children have the intellectual capacity to understand all of the issues involved in it. Um, no, of course not. No, and in fact, the left argues that exact thing when it comes to criminal justice reform, right? They say we cannot sentence under 18-year-olds to jail for commission even of really heinous crimes because their brains have not fully formed. They do not know the long-term consequences of their actions. And so, therefore, we cannot sentence them as if they are adults. That's at the core of the, the, the reform movement for uh, you know raising the age, they call it, raise the age. So, yeah, they, they speak out of both sides of their mouth. Jerry, I appreciate the call. Good to hear from you. Have a great weekend. The Twitter handle is at Pete Kalliner. That's Kalliner with a K and then an A-L-I-N-E-R. I got this tweet from Icky Foo who says, My boss's daughter was like this. She could not play unless you told her exactly what to do. She didn't know basic games like cutting out paper dolls. It was sad. All right, free play. 
this idea that the kids can just play, and, and I've gone over this before because you learn at certain ages. I believe I w- played some clips a couple weeks back, maybe a couple months ago. Jordan Peterson, clinical psychologist, talking about the early formative years, ages you know two, three, four, where you start developing this sense of other people. When you are two or three, it's just you. Everything is you. Everything's about me. But then when you start engaging in uh, in playing with when you start playing with other kids, you have to then negotiate these things. You have to learn like you got to be able to play together. So you have to construct rules and you then both have to kind of play by those rules, because if it becomes not fun for one of the participants, then the play is over and you want the play to continue. And so you learn this kind of negotiation and it is then when you start developing this sense that, oh, that other person has other needs and desires as well. It has to be good for them, too. And Peterson's larger argument was that for a number of reasons, you end up we've ended up creating a society uh, that now a lot of these people are adults and they never learned that for, again, a number of reasons, a lot of single kids. Right. No, no siblings, that kind of thing. And this structured play, no free play opportunities. And then you add into this the social media stuff. And this is what John Haight is arguing at his uh, at his newsletter. Childhood has been rewired. It has become phone based and rates of anxiety and depression are soaring. When we look across thousands of girls, and this is most acutely seen and felt among Teenage girls. We find no strong or clear correlation between the time spent on social media and level of any kind of mental illness or disorder. We might even find that the non users are more depressed and anxious than moderate users, which some studies do find. This is known as the Goldilocks effect. Okay. What we see in the second case is social media creates a cohort effect, though. Cohort effect. Something that happened to a whole cohort of young people, including those who don't even use social media. It also creates a trap, a collective action problem, he calls it, for girls and for parents. Each girl might be worse off quitting Instagram, even though all girls would be better off if everyone quit. Right? So the individual girl might be worse off quitting Instagram, even though All girls would be better off if everybody quit. He says an implication of this analysis is that the correlations we are about to look at probably underestimate the true effect of social media as a cause of the teen mental illness epidemic. He then spends way too many pages that I'm going to skip ahead because it's all sciencey stuff. It's got it's got R factors and plus signs and negatives and. Yeah, whatever. So, like, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go past all of that because it's uh, it's I will trust their research. He's got and he brought in people to help do this sort of crowdsourcing research. He brought in like world renowned researchers to work with him on this stuff. People who had reached other conclusions in similar studies. He wanted everybody involved. Despite several years of heated debate, a consensus has emerged about just how large the correlation is between social media use and mood disorder uh, disorders. Mood disorders. The relationships are even stronger among girls. We compared the association of social media time with mental illness. 
social media time with mental illness. Mood disorders were more closely associated with social media usage than with marijuana use and binge drinking, although they were less closely associated with sleep deprivation. So think about that. Would you encourage marijuana use and binge drinking in your teenage girl? Would you allow them to do that behavior? If you're the parent, would you permit that? But if the mood disorders are actually worse on social media, when you use social media, that's permitted? Few parents would knowingly let their daughters become heavy users of anything that was correlated with mental illness like that. The effects might be even larger for younger teen girls who are just beginning puberty. He says, now, these correlations do not prove causation, but the frequent finding that the correlations are consistently higher for social media than high and higher for girls tells us that we're not just looking at random noise here, right? Again, correlation, not causation. He's going through the correlation part of it first. But when you see so much, so much correlation, you can, you can guess you know, pretty accurately, that there's something going on here. This is a, there's a consistent story emerging from hundreds of correlation studies. All right, so that was sort of the first group of studies he looked at. Then the second group is uh, what, what are called longitudinal studies, where you monitor people, you track them over years, maybe, right? They have 40 longitudinal studies. 25 of them, so 63%, found evidence indicating causation, 63%. The others largely failed to find such evidence. So it's a two-to-one margin there on the um, on a causation. The studies that used a short-time interval mostly failed to find an effect. What does that mean? It means that the studies that they concocted or constructed, I don't want to be biased here, I'm not trying to, you know, taint the jury pool here, but the when you when you create the study parameters and you say, okay, get off social media for a week. And then the people who are off it for a week are reporting anxiety, right? Higher levels of stress and all of that. Then the uh, the tendency in these 15 studies was to say, well, that proves that it's not social media because they're all they're, because they're feeling these effects when they're not on social media for a week. But what Hate and his other researchers point out is that going cold turkey off of an addiction doesn't make you happy, right? In fact, it elevates these things. It makes you anxious. It makes you dysphoric. You should not expect to find anything else if you're addicted to social media, right? So getting off of it, cold turkey, for a brief period of time, you are going to see the elevated levels of anxiety and depression and dysphoria. But what happens after a week or two? Ah, when you look at the longer term, then you see all of those rates come back down. Once you're off it for a couple weeks, you, you're not having those, those problems anymore. 33 studies used a month or more And of those 33, 24 found a significant defect, which is 73% of the studies. That's causation. That's his argument. All right, so now we come to the the gold standard in the social sciences for testing causality, which is the experiment. 
Right now, in total, we've got 18 experiments trying to link social media with mental illness, testing this theory, right? This is an experiment. 18 have been done. 12 of them find evidence of a causal effect. That is 67% of the gold standard, the experiment, okay? Six failed to find evidence of a causal effect. Couple of studies to highlight. One, randomly assigned college students to greatly reduce the use of social media platforms or not to reduce, and then they measured their depressive symptoms four weeks later. They found that the group that had limited their use showed significant reductions in loneliness and depression over three weeks compared to the control group that did not change their behavior. There's another study, randomly assigned teen girls uh, to be exposed either to original selfies taken from Instagram or to selfies that were manipulated to be extra attractive. And what that experiment found, results showed, exposure to the manipulated Instagram photos directly led to lower body image. Another study randomly assigned female college students to use Facebook, Instagram, or perform an emotionally neutral task. They called that the control condition, and they gave them iPads to do it. What they found, those who used Instagram, but not Facebook, showed decreased body satisfaction, decreased positive effect, and increased negative effect. Again, going cold turkey brings immediate discomfort to addicts. The benefits only kick in after a couple weeks when the brain finally adapts to the loss of the chronic stimulation. So if you remove the studies that only use this real short timeline for, you know, going cold turkey, if you take them out, the ones that only measured a week of being off the sauce, the final tally becomes 10 that found evidence that social media is harmful, and that's 80%. 80% finds it to be harmful. These experiments provide direct evidence, he says, that social media, particularly Instagram, is a cause, not just a correlate, of bad mental health, especially in teenage girls and women. Then there's this other thing, this, uh, what do they call it? It's like a quasi-experiment, I think is the name of it. This was pretty fascinating. They looked at how whole communities changed when social media suddenly becomes more available. They don't set up the parameters for the experiment. These are things that just happened. It's, uh, uh, it, it, they take advantage of something that just occurs, right? And there's a couple of studies, these quasi-experiments, I should say, where they were able to take advantage of this. For example, there was one in 2022 took advantage of the fact that Facebook was originally offered only to students at a small number of colleges, as we learned in that movie about Mark Zuckerberg, right? That's where it started. He stole the idea from somebody else, made people feel bad about themselves because they rated attractiveness against each other, right? So they put Facebook into the colleges first. As the company expanded to new colleges, did mental health change in the following year or two at those colleges compared to colleges where students did not yet have access to Facebook? And it did. Got worse. The rollout of Facebook at a college increased symptoms of poor mental health especially depression. It led to increased utilization of mental health services. It led to the decline in mental health, uh, or the, the, the decline in mental health led to 
worse academic performance as well. Here's another one. In Spain, fiber optic cables got laid. High-speed internet came to different regions at different times. Same thing, except with clearer evidence of a gendered effect. So there was this study. um, It analyzed the effects of access to high-speed internet on hospital discharge diagnoses among adolescents. Their conclusion, quote, We find a positive and significant impact on girls, but not boys. Exploring the mechanism behind these effects, we show that HSI, high-speed internet, increases addictive internet use and significantly decreases time spent sleeping, doing homework, and socializing with family and friends. Girls, again, power all of these effects. So what do you have also going on here? You've got a severing of the relationships. And I know what I'm about to say may be controversial to some, seems pretty obvious to others. Men and women are different. Boys and girls are different, right? Men, generally speaking, not in all cases, but generally speaking, boys and men are more interested in things and girls and women are more interested in people, relationships. Women often define themselves through this prism of their relationships. I'm a mom. I am a wife. I'm a sister, whatever. I'm a grandma, right? And Men tend to define themselves through their work, through the, what they are. The hat they wear, I think, is what the book called it in, uh, what, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, right? That um, not only are we from different planets, but we have a different way of viewing the self. Another study, British Columbia, Canada, where it took a long time for high-speed Internet to reach rural areas, they found the same thing. Estimates suggest High-speed wireless internet significantly increased teenage girls' mental health diagnoses by 90% relative to teen boys over the period when visual social media became dominant among teenagers. Six of these quasi-experiments that looked at real-world outcomes in real-world settings when the arrival of Facebook or high-speed internet created large and sudden emergent network effects. All six of these quasi-experiments found that when social life moves rapidly online, mental health declines, especially for girls. Not one study failed to find a harmful effect. So we're 11 years into the largest epidemic now of teen mental illness on record. CDC's recent report showed most girls are suffering. Nearly a third have seriously considered suicide. Why? Why did it happen so suddenly around 2012? Have you figured this out yet? John Haight, writing at his uh, Substack, After Babel is the name of the Substack. His name is John Haight. Uh, it's spelled H-A-I-D-T. He's a social psychologist. And the piece is titled, Social Media is a Major Cause of the Mental Illness Epidemic in Teen Girls. Here's the Evidence. It's a very lengthy piece. He's got links to all of the research. He explains his methodology. There's, they're writing a book about all of this, by the way. These researchers that have been putting this together, this is all towards a goal of putting this into a book. So what happened around 2012? There is one giant, obvious, international, and gendered cause. Instagram was founded in 2010. The iPhone was released then, too. 
the first smartphone with a front-facing camera. In 2012, Facebook bought Instagram. And that's the year that its user base exploded. By 2015, it was becoming normal for 12-year-old girls to spend hours each day taking selfies, editing selfies, posting them for friends, posting them for enemies, and to strangers, and everybody got to comment on them. While also spending hours each day scrolling through photos of other girls and fabulously wealthy female celebrities with seemingly vastly superior bodies and lives. The girls spent each day on Instagram... Sorry, the hours that the girls spent each day on Instagram were taken from sleep, from exercise, and time with friends and family. What did we think would happen? This is all very obvious to me. I mean, I, to me, personally, I, I, it's pretty clear. You've been around a kid who uses social media a lot or uses the Internet a lot. <laughs> the younger they are, right, the harder it is to kind of break them away from it. The moodier they get when they, when they uh, get their access cut off. And I have heard this, too, by the way. I've heard uh, where uh, it's, it's a very helpful way to, you know, make kids behave because the threat of losing it is so great that it, that you can use that in order to, you know, keep them in line. And then if, if you do end up having to take it from them, then their withdrawal kicks in and they become unbearable. And so a lot of times it's like, oh my gosh, I can't, I cannot put up with them. So just take the thing back. Right. So I get it. But I just wonder if these are if these effects are so damaging and we now have a decade's worth of research with all different kinds of studies, experiments, quasi experiments, and it all points to the same thing. And the damage is greater than, you know, regular marijuana use and, and binge drinking, especially among girls, that the depression effects are greater. I mean, would we be encouraging those things among teenage girls? I don't think so, but I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to say nowadays. It's hard to say nowadays what what we would not encourage. Seems like we're encouraging all sorts of things among young kids. Then I came across this sort of related. Seattle is banning TikTok and Meta. Seattle schools are actually suing. Meta is the parent company of Facebook, right? They rebranded when they in, a couple of years ago now, um, and they own Instagram. Seattle Public Schools is suing four major social media companies for their role in creating a mental health crisis in America's youth under a state law, public nuisance law in Washington. The social media companies listed in the lawsuit are Meta, so Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google and YouTube. The school district said that the mental health crisis of young people is the direct result of technologies that have made these social media companies the giants they are today. I have heard more than one or read more than one statement, by the way, from uh, people who work 
in the upper levels of uh, management at various tech companies, social media companies, I should say. They won't let their own kids use this stuff because they know. They know. This is one of the reasons why I don't, there's only one, sorry, there are only two notifications that come through on my phone. And I use social media. I use Twitter predominantly. I don't really use any of the others. Um, So I'm in this camp with you guys, right? But I restricted my notifications on my phone. The only time I hear any kind of audio signal that a message has come in is if it's a text message from my wife or it's a phone call. That's it. I do not need to see, sorry, I do not need to hear every single message. I mean, my phone would just not stop beeping. I have, like, there's way too many points of access. Like, <laughs> face, because the, the dings, right? The, those little bells that go off. This is Pavlovian, right? Pavlov's dog, where you want to feed the dog, and every time you feed him, you give a little bit of a bell, and the dog starts salivating even before you give him the treat. And then you stop giving him the treat, and the dog keeps salivating. You've created a reaction, and the social scientists know this, and they got hired by these companies to do this stuff, to find ways to make the, the platforms more addictive. You think those games, there's another thing, like in the gamer world, um, you, you read the, the data on, on who games. First off, you'd be surprised, like the average gamer age is over the age of 40, which makes sense because Gen X, you know, grew up with video games. But you, you have this idea of who plays video games, and it's always this, you know, uh, young male, you know, in mom and dad's basement or something, right? But actually women because they're playing video games on their phones. Do you think those games are not designed to keep you playing and to maybe buy some stuff? Absolutely. Little dopamine hits, little little micro doses into the brain. Add in a couple of bells and whistles, and you're hooked. And what do you sacrifice in exchange? The things, particularly among women and teenage girls, that matter the most relationships.